The year, 1917. The place, Revolutionary Russia. The Women's Battalion of Death, an all-female combat infantry unit, is about to step into the trenches of the First World War. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. This is episode four, Battalions of Death. I am your host, James Hauser, and hope you guys are having a great day. I'm thrilled to have y'all for this one, because it's one of my favorite historical footnotes that doesn't deserve to be a footnote. That one time, an all-female combat battalion fought on the front lines of the First World War. And I hope y'all are ready to hear all about it. Couple things I need to say. First, this is not just history. But military history. So there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. This podcast is PG-13. The language is clean. The content is not. Second, all my sources will be posted on my website. So if you want to know where I got my information, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's get into it. Our story today is, in a lot of ways, still not over. So in 2016, for the first time, the United States Army officially opened combat positions to women. Now, I was serving in the Army at the time, and I still am as of this recording. And there was and is a great deal of controversy about women serving in combat units. Lots of comments about physical fitness, mental differences between the sexes and or genders, and the reaction of male soldiers to their integration. Everyone had questions about how this would affect military readiness. It seemed like we were in an uncharted territory as far as women in the military were concerned. But here's the thing. We weren't the first to ask those questions. 99 years before the United States integrated women into the combat arms, the provisional government of revolutionary Russia authorized the creation of women's battalions to fight on the front lines of the First World War. While several units were formed, only one actually took part in combat. But they did take part in combat. Only in the last several decades have the women's battalions received the attention they deserve, And even now, most people have no idea they ever existed, or that European women fought on the front lines in one of history's deadliest conflicts. By doing so, they answered a lot of those questions people asked in the last decade, but then they vanished from history. The answers they provided may surprise you. They surprised me when I first learned about the women's battalions only a few years ago. The women's battalions of World War I existed for a very brief period in mid-1917, created during one of the greatest upheavals in world history, and the turning point in the history of Russia, the Russian Revolution. The pressures of World War I and the sudden burst of patriotism and freedom that came with the initial days of the revolution created the opportunity for patriotic Russian women to join the army and march off to fight for the motherland. 
when the revolution began to turn on itself, when Russia disintegrated into civil war and terror, the women's battalions left the stage, and they were forgotten. Some might say they were forgotten on purpose, but they didn't deserve to be. Today, we'll be talking about the strange life of the women's battalion of death and its equally strange leader, a woman sometimes called the Russian Joan of Arc, Maria Bochkareva. We're going to talk about how women came to fight for the Russian army in World War I, how the revolution changed everything, and how the battalions were formed. We're going to follow them into combat on the Eastern Front. We're going to find out why they didn't exist after Lenin's Bolshevik Revolution in November 1917, and we're going to see what happened to their members. But above all, we're going to find out why they're important. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. So, form up, ladies, shave your heads, pick up your rifles, and grab some grenades, because we're going on campaign. Where are we going, you ask? We're going to the battle lines of the First World War, but not the ones you're probably thinking about. Okay, so when your average Joe or your average Jill thinks of World War I, there's a certain image that comes to mind, right? 90% of the time, that image is the Western Front. Trench warfare along a static line over a blasted landscape, occupied by German and British soldiers, okay, maybe some French soldiers, in massive ditches on a narrow front. This is your typical World War I image in the Western world. Now, okay, this is not where I start rambling about World War I, because trust me, if I do, we'll be here all day and then some. But I just want to make the point that there was so much more to the Great War than the Western Front. There was an entire Eastern Front as well, one that your average man or woman on the street would know nothing about. Russia's World War I experience was unique. Now, every country suffered in the Great War. They lost hundreds of thousands of men. Disease and starvation were common. Combat was hellish and brutal on an unimagined scale. And all these pressures tore the very fabric of society. Every country in the Great War came under unimaginable strain. And every country dealt with it differently. What made Russia different was that it was the first country to snap under that strain. And this was in large part because prior to 1914, Russia had been the most authoritarian, most repressive country in Europe. And Europe was not exactly a shining beacon of freedom in those days, so that's pretty bad. Tsarist Russia was an autocratic, patriarchal empire. And those are not just buzzwords. Those aren't descriptions I just pulled out of some textbook. Those are the words that they used. The Tsar's literal title was Emperor and Autocrat of all the Russias. He called himself an autocrat. As for the patriarchy part, in Orthodox Christian prayer books, the Tsar was described as Russia's father and all of his subjects as being his children. When Russia's referred to the Tsar in passing, they would often call him the Tsar Batyushaka or Tsar Dear Father. 
So the Tsar wasn't just your boss, he was your daddy. Really abusive daddy, too. If the Tsar held the roles of autocrat of his empire and male authority figure for his national family, what does that tell you about gender roles in 1914 in Russia? I'll be upfront. For most of history, okay, things have sucked. You almost always sucked, but they have usually sucked worse for women. And that was the case in Tsarist Russia. Women at every rank of society were subordinate to men. And this was reinforced by both the Russian state and the Orthodox Church. With a few noble, well-born, or wealthy exceptions, women were not a part of public life. Married women were basically the property of their husbands and were ordered by law to submit to their male authority figures. By law. Even when schools began to allow women in the late 19th century, whether or not a woman went to school depended entirely on her husband or her father. Just like the Tsar was the autocrat of Russia, the man was the autocrat of the house. Now, despite the feminist and suffragist movements of the early 20th century, this is very early feminism, the situation wasn't much better in the rest of Europe. But most of Europe didn't experience the sheer poverty and illiteracy of the Russian peasant. This made things a bit different. See, countries like America, Britain, or France in this period, there was a notion that some scholars call the cult of domesticity, a Victorian ideal where the woman stayed at home and kept house while the man went out to earn his pay. You know, like American 50s, two-car garage, mothers making pies in the kitchen. This ideal wasn't always reality, of course. But in Russia, this ideal never really caught on at all. Basically because it was a middle class ideal, and Russia had a very small middle class compared to its massive peasantry. And in the peasant lifestyle, women took part in hard physical labor just as much as the men. No, 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 this never meant that women were equal, obviously. Especially since women were still expected to take care of the home, even after working in the fields all day. Women were also forbidden from doing most skilled and high-paying jobs. But in Russia, compared to most other countries, your average woman was much more used to physical labor and working alongside men. Gender roles in Russia were similar to the rest of the world, but they were not the same. Every culture, every culture has its little nuances, including nuances in its ideas about the place of men and women. So it's really hard to say that it was better or worse in Russia than anywhere else. Okay, now that we've laid that groundwork, and okay, that will be important, I promise, I promise. We need to talk about World War I. As much as I would love, love to stretch this to 20 hours and tell you all the reasons World War I started, I will not do that, and you're welcome. If you want the whole Franz Ferdinand, Spirit of 1914, Schlieffen Plan, all that stuff, I have a bunch written about it on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. Go check it out. Otherwise... I'll keep this simple. Russia had a bad World War I. Most countries did, but Russia basically got punched in the face as soon as things started and never really got over it. Now, Russia was one of the great land powers of Europe. Massive population, huge land area. But the Tsar's government was just not up to the job of modern war. The authoritarian regime was cruel, inefficient, and broken. Tsar Nicholas II was an ineffective leader on his best days. 
the ministries were totally corrupt, and Russian industry and infrastructure were badly underdeveloped. Despite fielding millions of men at the front, the Russian army had almost no generals worth a crap, and wasted the bravery of its troops in stupid, stumbling attacks. Many of the soldiers were illiterate, poorly equipped, and badly trained, and some didn't even have weapons or basic equipment. Russia started the war with 5 million men in its army, but not enough rifles for all those men. So, when 1914 comes, and this whole thing kicks off, the Russians get curb stomped by the Germans at the Battle of Tannenberg, and everything goes downhill from there. By 1916, Russia had lost a jaw-dropping 3 million men, along with a third of its industry because the Eastern Front is deep inside Russian territory. Everyone knew that Russia was losing World War I, and if something didn't change soon, it might already be too late. The government of the Russian Empire was collapsing under the strain of the war. As casualty lists rose, morale was snapping in the trenches and on the home front. As more and more men were called up to the ranks, though, women stepped up to fill in the gaps, just as they were doing all over Europe. The first total war in history demanded more labor and sacrifice from every member of society, and this began to tear up old gender roles. In every country, women began to appear in positions that would have been unthinkable before 1914. In Russia, for instance, the need for able-bodied fighting men saw women take up jobs as streetcar drivers, railroad employees, coal workers, metal workers, arms production. For middle and upper class women, they took part in the Sisters of Mercy, sort of like an auxiliary nursing corps, which none of this would have ever happened if not for the First World War. The vast majority of these jobs, though, were not military, and they were only tangentially related to the war effort. Women were replacing men in industrial jobs so men could go out and fight, not assuming an equal place in society. It was supposed to be an emergency measure, not a major change. But for some women, this was not enough. Some women wanted to support the motherland in a more direct, more immediate way. And some of them did. When it comes to women in combat, Virtually every nation on earth has its story. France has Joan of Arc. England has Boudicca. The United States has Molly Pitcher. China has Fa Mulan. The woman who takes up arms as a last resort when all her men have failed to deliver the country. Russia has Natalia Durova. During Russia's wars against Napoleon, Natalia Durova disguised herself as a man and joined a Cossack cavalry regiment. After several years of service, she was discovered, but the Tsar allowed her to stay with her unit. When she was wounded at the Battle of Borodino in 1812, Dorova was promoted to captain, the first woman to hold an officer's rank in the Russian army. She retired with a pension and was buried with full military honors. The famous story of Dorova became a staple of Russian legend. There were books, an opera, eventually a movie. At least one of those books was published and was very popular in the years just before World War I. But Dorova was, like Joan of Arc and Boudicca and Famulan, the exception that proved the rule. If you go to Barnes & Noble tomorrow and find a random book about warrior women or fighting women in history and read the entries, you'll notice something pretty quickly. One or even a small group of women that takes part in combat almost never changes the status quo. 
Joan of Arc did not start a trend of female knights in France. The legend of Molly Pitcher crewing a cannon in the American Revolution did not kick the door open for other women. In some versions of the Fa Mulan legend, she gets her butt executed, so that glass ceiling is still pretty airtight. So in most societies, almost all societies, the acceptance of one or a few women who could fight did not fundamentally change the rules. Now, I'm not going to get into the reasons why women have been excluded from war for most of history. That's not just historical, that's dang near anthropological. And that question is just about an episode all on its own. What I am getting at here is that there have always been exceptions, but those exceptions didn't mean a change in the rules. But, and big but, enough exceptions can end up changing the rule on its own. From the beginning of the First World War, a small number of Russian women began to break traditional gender roles by trying to join the army and take up arms for the motherland. Now keep in mind, Russia absolutely did not allow women to join the army. Official policy did not change. What did happen was that exceptions were made. Women disguised themselves, or some officer allowed them to join on the down low. Or in some very rare cases, the Tsar himself signed off on the exception. But why did these women join? That seems like a good question, right? Well, any number of reasons. Some joined to get away from a bad home life or an abusive relationship. Others wanted revenge for a loved one that was killed in the early battles. For some of them, the army was their escape from poverty or deprivation. The majority of women who joined as individuals, though, joined out of a deep sense of patriotism, a feeling that God was calling them to take up arms to defend their homeland. What does this sound like to you? Well, they kind of sound like all the reasons men joined the military, don't they? These weren't woman reasons. They were soldier reasons. But don't take my word for it. Listen to the words of Alexandra Danilova, who petitioned her local military authorities to join a combat unit. Here's what she said. Having a strong burning desire to enter as a volunteer into the army for the defense of the dear Tsar and fatherland, I request my enrollment in the regular army. She cut her hair, joined up with a regiment, and was wounded in action fighting in southern Poland. Now here's what Anna Krasnkova said in her petition. I must stand up for the motherland. My heart burns for this. When she was turned down, she disguised herself anyway and fought in 19 battles. On November 7, 1914, she was the first out of the trenches in an attack and she was wounded. Her identity was discovered, but she was still awarded the St. George's Cross and was allowed to continue fighting. Here is Margarita Kokovseva, who was allowed to join a Cossack cavalry regiment. I love to ride, and at home I had my own horse, which I alone cared for. A Cossack is a Cossack. Among the Cossacks, I was an equal among equals. She was wounded in battle against German cavalry and received the St. George's Cross. Twelve student girls from Moscow, all 17 or under, disguised themselves together to go to the battlefront. They persuaded the regimental commander to take them on. According to a Russian war correspondent, The girls shared with the men all the privations and horrors of war, 
and discharged the duties of ordinary privates. The regiment scaled the Carpathians, incessantly participating in battle, and the girls never fell back from it a step. One of the young women was killed by a shell in front of her schoolmates. Another one, Zoya Smirnova, was wounded twice in combat, promoted to sergeant, and awarded the St. George's Cross. You'd expect a lot of these stories to end up with abuse or sexual assault, particularly because, you know, it's a few women among a sea of men. But sexual violence was rare, and most of the women integrated into their units. They became one of the boys. They sort of defeminized themselves. They would cut their hair, act like men, assume manly qualities. And this became a big part of the women's experience in the military. As soon as they stopped being seen as women and started being seen as soldiers, it was easier for male soldiers to accept their presence. One quote I read was, I was a soldier, not a girl. And that seemed to sum it up. All told, at least 49, but probably closer to several hundred women, fought as part of the Russian army as individuals during the First World War before the revolution in 1917. Think about how nuts this is. This is a grassroots movement. These were individual Russian women with a variety of motivations who wanted really hard to fight in World War I and somehow made it happen. And what makes this all the weirder? This didn't really happen anywhere else in the First World War. The British Army had one woman, a journalist named Dorothy Lawrence, who disguised herself in a company for 10 days before she was discovered and sent home. As far as we know, she was the only British woman to serve on the Western Front for any length of time. Another English woman named Flora Sanz managed to get into the Serbian army and take part in combat. Well, she was pretty hardcore and might even deserve her own episode one of these days. But she was also the only British woman to serve in combat that we know of. There were onesies and twosies elsewhere in the Austro-Hungarian, Serbian, or Romanian armies. Most of them were disguised and eventually discovered. But no other country had a widespread phenomenon of individual women gaining open acceptance as frontline soldiers. Only Russia. Why? Well, there are a few possible reasons. Like I said, women in Russia were still second-class subjects, but in a different way than in Western Europe. They were more used to backbreaking labor, harsh conditions, and working alongside men. This made it easier for them to accept military life as a possible means of serving their nation. There was the tradition of Natalia Dorova, but remember, she was an exception, not the rule, and many other countries had that one woman who fights. The most obvious answer might be that Russia was in a time of crisis, and in times of crisis, Lots of rules tend to go out the window. After the massive defeats of 1914 and 1915, recruiters just stopped being picky. It's a tale as old as time. We do it too. How do you think Forrest Gump got in the army? The recruiters stopped being picky. The most famous of all Russian women soldiers, though, was Maria Bochkareva. And we need to spend some time with her, because she would be the founder and leader of the Women's Battalion of Death.
Maria Bochkareva is basically the hero of today's story. Her story is incredible, unique, and not just because she was a decorated female soldier. No. Unlike all the women I've mentioned so far, including Joan of Arc, Famulan, and all those Russian women, Bochkareva was a trailblazer for her fellow woman. I mean, she didn't look like she was going to be much. A peasant girl from the Ural Mountains, Maria was born in absolute poverty in 1889. Her family was constantly on the point of starvation. They were so broke that Maria was working for wages by the age of eight, and she lived under the Russian patriarchal tyranny of her drunken, abusive father. She married at the age of 15, mostly to escape her father, and uh, her new husband was also an abusive drunk. Abandoned by this husband, she ran off to exile in Siberia with her lover, who was an abusive drunk. I mean, she either knew how to pick him, or everyone in Siberia in 1900s was an abusive drunk. Probably a little column A, little column B. But what did not kill her only made her stronger. Since the men in her life were mostly useless, she had to earn her own living, usually doing backbreaking labor in road building or construction. Even though she was always deeply emotional, she was tough and confident. Maria was also deeply pious, constantly praying to God for liberation from her hard and cruel existence. Then the war came. For Maria, the need to join the men at the front was like a religious conversion. Here's what she said. The thought of going to war penetrated deeper and deeper into my whole being. Day and night, my imagination carried me to the fields of battle, and my ears rang with the groans of my wounded brethren. My heart yearned to be there, in the seething cauldron of war, to be baptized in its fire and scorched in its lava. The spirit of sacrifice took possession of me. My country called me, and an irresistible force from within impelled me. Maria successfully petitioned the Tsar himself to allow her to join the Russian army, and she was overjoyed when she learned that she could go to combat. She soon gained the respect and trust of her comrades, becoming one of the most well-liked and popular soldiers in her regiment. All soldiers had a nickname, and hers was Yashka. By early 1915, she was in combat on the Eastern Front. Like millions of other soldiers, such as George Patton or J.R.R. Tolkien or Adolf Hitler, Maria Bochkareva was changed forever by what she experienced in the trenches. Yashka would fight through the battles of 1915 and 1916 and was responsible for rescuing many men from no man's land. She personally killed at least one German with a bayonet and was wounded twice receiving the St. George's Cross. One shell fragment in 1916 struck her spine and nearly paralyzed her for life until months of therapy enabled her to walk and rejoin her regiment. When her fellow soldiers came out cheering to welcome her back to the trenches, she remembered thinking that there were a few things in life that made those years of torment and misery worth it. Maria Bochkareva was one of those odd people who was made for war. It kind of speaks to how much her life sucked before that World War I, of all things, was a positive experience for her. By becoming accepted in her unit, 
by earning medals in the field of battle, by rising above her humble beginnings, Maria found a life for herself on the Eastern Front that she never would have found anywhere else. As odd as it may seem to us, in a culture that views World War I as a waste and modern war as a force with no redeeming qualities, Maria Bochkareva found her place in the trenches. She was home. She was a force of nature, a powerful, charismatic woman, despite her limited intellect and education. Maria was strong, tough, and incredibly stubborn. She smoked, drank, and even went to whorehouses with her fellow soldiers. But she was also deeply religious and oddly prudish about sex. She was passionate and outstandingly brave. But Yashka was limited by her complete lack of education, and she was so hardened by her difficult life that she could come off as crude and rough to people of higher class. This wasn't something she could really help, you know? But she also had a temper that she found hard to control, very little tact or caution, and she had a very my way or the highway attitude. Maria Bochkareva, Russia's woman soldier par excellence, was the opposite of subtle. She was a sledgehammer of a human being, but a sledgehammer can't do everything. But let's get back to our narrative. Even as women continued to join the Russian army, the fortunes of war on the Eastern Front had begun to shift. On June 4th, 1916, Russian General Alexei Brusilov launched a massive assault on Austro-Hungarian lines in Ukraine. Brusilov was the only really good general that Russia had in World War I, and his new tactics and careful planning produced results. The bloody battle lasted for four months, and it was the first clear Russian victory since the war began. The Brusilov Offensive basically broke the back of the Austro-Hungarian army and forced the Germans to rush units from France to fight off the Russian steamroller. The Russians had demonstrated that they were finally learning their lessons after two years of fighting. Side note, it was in this battle where Maria Bochkareva was wounded and nearly paralyzed. But it was a Pyrrhic victory. Brusilov's victorious battle lasted four months it had caused a staggering one million more casualties, and the Russian army's morale was absolutely in the gutter. Brusilov himself received anonymous threatening notes from his own soldiers, where they basically told him that if they survived the battle, they were coming after him. The Russian soldiers, to put it bluntly, had had enough. After three years of defeat, miserable conditions, mistreatment by their officers and generals, and the lack of anything to really fight for besides their already oppressive lives back on the Lord's Manor or in the factory, the Russian soldier had lost any give-a-crap he might have had. The victory had come too late to turn the tide of Russian opinion. Unrest was spreading, behind the lines as well. People were fed up with the poor state of the country and the Tsar's regime. Food was scarce, prices were high, and no one had any confidence in victory anymore. Things in Russia were finally about to boil over because people were finally talking about revolution. So now we have to talk about the Russian Revolution. Oh Lord, here we go. The Russian Revolution is huge and complicated. If you ask 10 historians about it, you'll get 30 opinions and all of them will be really long. 
But the Russian Revolution is one of the most important and cataclysmic events in modern history. There are enormous books written on tiny details of it, and I'm not going to try to explain it here. We have battalions of death to get to. But there's one central thing you need to know about the revolution for this story. There were two Russian revolutions in 1917, really. The February Revolution and the October Revolution. The February Revolution overthrew the Tsar and the Empire and replaced them with a provisional government of liberal nobles and middle-class leaders. It was the October Revolution that would overthrow the provisional government and see the rise of the Bolsheviks of Vladimir Lenin and Leon Trotsky. So this is important. Two different revolutions, nine months apart. So we're not at Lenin yet, but he's coming. Okay, in February 1917, the workers of Petrograd, modern St. Petersburg, began to riot due to food shortages and lack of political freedom. On March 7th, February 22nd, in the old-style Julian calendar, which was still used in Russia, long story, not going to go into it, liberals and socialists led a march in St. Petersburg for International Women's Day. This demonstration merged with a major factory strike, and soon thousands of people were pouring out into the streets. When the soldiers went in on March 11th, they immediately either mutinied, shot, or chased off their officers and joined the revolt. Tsar Nicholas II soon abdicated, and Russian opposition leaders quickly declared a provisional government that would lead Russia into a new age of liberty and hope. The provisional government was a center-left organization. Think something like, I don't know, Joe Biden, sure. It wasn't super radical, but compared to the religious ultra-conservative monarchy it had just overthrown, anything was better. The provisional government was made up mainly of liberal nobles and middle-class leaders. The charismatic, naive young socialist leader, Alexander Kerensky, was eventually chosen as its president. Now there's a lot to be said for the February Revolution. Once the Tsar was out of power, the provisional government made a lot of changes to Russia. Remember, this is a country where the Tsar literally called himself an autocrat and the father of his people, and he meant it. But now, everything was different. Even Maria Butchkareva in the trenches felt the sudden change in the air. Everyone celebrated the downfall of the Tsar. The provisional government granted local self-government, freedom of speech, and the press abolition of all religious and class restrictions, and it promised land reform and total democracy. They even granted women the right to vote in July 1917, which made Russia, of all places, a brighter beacon of liberty than the United States of America, which would not give women that right for another few years. In fact, the revolution broke down so many barriers that the gender barrier was just one among many. By transforming the subjects of the Tsar into citizens, a category now including women, a new spirit of equality and freedom swept across Russia. But there was an implication here. By removing the Tsar, the father of the nation, the revolution had symbolically removed the spirit of male supremacy over the family. By giving women all the rights of citizens, the revolution implied that they now had the responsibilities of citizens. The possibilities were endless. But the provisional government had dark clouds on the horizon. Kerensky and his government made two enormous mistakes right after the Tsar was overthrown. 
the first was order number one, which was meant to liberate the army's rank and file from their miserable conditions. This order proclaimed that every soldier now had all the rights and freedoms of the citizen and instructed every unit to form a soldier's committee that would take charge of the organization. Order number one also abolished courts martial and the death penalty for desertion. The soldiers' committees soon displaced the officers as the real commanders of units. Now, the provisional government definitely had good intentions when they did this. Military discipline in the Tsar's army had been barbaric, and the soldiers had been treated like dirt. But order number one killed discipline in the Russian army. These orders meant to promote democracy ended up making most of the army non-functional. The soldiers' committees basically took over their units, ignoring the commands of their officers and becoming completely uncontrollable. Desertions skyrocketed. Many officers were killed or driven from their posts, and orders were resisted or ignored. The army began to fall apart, and by April and May 1917, mass mutinies were breaking out. This is a problem, of course, because the Russian army is still in World War I. The only reason the Germans didn't take advantage of this situation was because over on the Western Front, France and Britain kept punching them in the face. But the provisional government knew it was only a matter of time before the bad condition of the Russian army became a major issue. Which leads us to our second big mistake the provisional government made. Out of obligation to their allies, and with a feeling that the Germans had to be defeated, the provisional government decided to continue the war. They decided to stay in World War I to the bitter end. This ended up being what killed the February Revolution. See, a whole lot of Russians wanted peace, peace at any price, an end to the war and all its hardships. No one wanted this more than the soldiers at the front. By agreeing to stay in the war, the provisional government opened itself up to opposition by a faction that would promote peace. And that faction ended up being Vladimir Lenin and his Bolshevik party. But right now, the issue was how to get Russia's soldiers to stay in the fight. By deciding to stay in the war and simultaneously passing a disastrous order that almost destroyed the army they needed to win that war, revolutionary Russia faced a dilemma. For that dilemma, the provisional government looked for many solutions. And one of those solutions came from Maria Bochkareva. In May 1917, the provisional government's ministers were touring the front to try and gauge the state of the army. During that time, one of the ministers, Mikhail Rodzienko, came across a very interesting woman. Maria Bochkareva made an immediate impression on the minister, who saw her as a great asset and convinced her to come back to Petrograd with him. He hoped that she had ideas on how to restore the Russian army to fighting shape. Now, Yashka had supported the revolution at first. She cheered the destruction of the Tsarist regime, believing that it meant freedom for the people of Russia. But then she grew alarmed at the breakdown in military discipline. She blamed it on the soldiers' committees and the abolition of old army discipline. Yashka's idea to save the Russian army was crazy, off the wall totally unprecedented. Yashka wanted to found a battalion of female soldiers. That's right. It was ultimately Maria Bochkareva's idea of a women's battalion to spearhead future offensives and serve as an example to the male soldiers. The idea was simple. 
If discipline would not get the men to fight, then maybe shame would. Russia's women would take the battlefield, since the men no longer seemed to want to, and maybe their presence would push the men to actually do their jobs. Now, the idea of forming special units to serve as a revolutionary vanguard was not unheard of. The Russian army was already forming multiple battalions of patriotic volunteer soldiers to serve as the cutting edge of any future attack. Basically like a shot of adrenaline to the heart of the Russian army. These battalions were called shock battalions, or in some cases, battalions of death. The battalions of death in particular took solemn oaths to defend the new Russia to the last drop of blood. Their banners were emblazoned with the skull and crossbones and their shoulders bore a red and black chevron. At least 106 battalions of death were raised starting in May 1917, but of course, we're only concerned with one battalion of death in this episode. Yashka carried her idea to Rodzianko, who got her into meetings with President Kerensky and General Brusilov, both of whom supported her notion. Maria Bochkareva was always stubborn, and she convinced Kerensky that she had to run her battalion her way. That meant, above all, no soldiers' councils. She believed that this idea would kill her new unit's discipline as soon as it was formed. Though Kerensky was angry at this idea, since in his naive mind, the soldiers' councils were part of the newer, freer Russia, Yashka refused to budge. Her unit would be run her way. Kerensky officially signed off on the first all-female combat unit in modern history, the Russian Women's Battalion of Death. On May 21st, 1917, Maria went on stage at a charity event and made a short appeal for women to join her new battalion. Here is what she said. Men and women citizens, our mother is perishing. Our mother is Russia. I want to help to save her. I want women whose hearts are loyal, whose souls are pure, whose aims are high. With such women setting an example of self-sacrifice, you men will realize your duty in this grave hour. Within days, Yashka had over 2,000 volunteers, which was way more than anyone had expected. Her 2,000 volunteers were sworn in as a battalion of death. This is what their oath said. My death for the motherland and for the freedom of Russia is happiness and the discharge of my oath. Many of Yashka's volunteers were well-educated, including 200 women from the Women's Polytechnic Institute. One was a princess, one was an admiral's daughter, some were Polish or Jewish, and there were even English and Japanese women for some reason. Although Yashka was anything but a 20th century feminist, there were many feminists in the ranks. Yashka's unit began training in an old barracks in Petrograd, assisted by several hand-picked male instructors. Maria selected a few of the better educated recruits to serve as NCOs or officers, then got to drilling and training them in combat. She insisted on strict, rigid discipline, the kind she had learned fighting on the Eastern Front. Wake up at 5 a.m., engage in mandatory prayers, eat a small breakfast of tea and bread, then off to drill. But Yashka demanded more than just military discipline. She sought to defeminize her recruits. 
Their uniforms were shapeless and baggy. Giggling and flirting were strictly forbidden. She encouraged smoking, and she swore ferociously. All of Yashka's recruits had to shave their heads. In their commander's own words, they were no longer women, but soldiers. Bochkareva had to deal with multiple crisis points. Early on, she began to lose numbers. Since many women had not expected the level of discipline they encountered under her command. Here, I think, is where Yashka's more negative qualities started to come into play. Her highest level of responsibility had been as an infantry sergeant. And her approach had always been, my way or the highway. Well, turns out a lot of people take the highway when you say that. And many of them joined other women's units that did not feature Yashka. She had no tact or diplomacy about her approach, which alienated her from many of her possible recruits. But to Maria, this was fine. She only wanted the most committed women. She wanted women whose hearts were pure, and according to her, she was only shedding dead weight. The biggest crisis came when many of the women tried, in that revolutionary spirit, to form their soldiers' committee. Yashka wasn't having this for a second. She saw it as an attempt to undermine her authority, and she had seen what the committees did at the front. She kicked out anyone trying to form a committee, which ended up being over half her unit. This got her into trouble with the local general and even President Kerensky himself, and she ended up in angry screaming matches with both of them. That temper of hers nearly got her unit disbanded, but instead, the higher-ups gave in. By June, Yashka was left with only 300 women from her original 2000, but from her point of view, they were soldiers that she could trust. The dead weight was gone. Many generals, ministers, and other assorted menfolk thought the women's battalions were a silly and foolish idea. Some men believed that they were only joining the military because they were, um, loose? Which is an accusation that women soldiers still receive to this day. Even lots of women disapproved. Some feminists believed that by becoming killers, these women were sacrificing their moral responsibilities to be the preservers of life rather than its destroyers. The Bolsheviks, who were always present in Petrograd as the left-wing opposition to the provisional government, also viewed Yashka's battalion with distaste. They believed it to be a tool of the bourgeoisie and a means of continuing the imperialist war. On at least one occasion, Yashka's troops got into a clash with the left-wing Petrograd Soviet, and the barracks was constantly harassed by Bolshevik agitators. But many people approved of the battalion, even some foreigners. Emmeline Pankhurst, the famous British feminist and suffragette, came to visit Petrograd in 1917 and gave a passionate speech to the Women's Battalion of Death, telling them that they were the greatest page written in the history of women since Joan of Arc. Foreign reaction was mixed, though. Many people regarded the women's units as a sign of barbarism or even degeneracy. Most men thought they would never accomplish anything. In the words of the military attaché to the American embassy, General William Judson, I enclose a picture of a woman's battalion. The Russians have a lot of them, and they are very useless and absurd. Now you're saying, wait, go back. What? Did he say a lot of them? Yes, he did. While Yashka's battalion had originally been the only unit planned, it had inadvertently sparked a grassroots movement. Because as it turned out, women all over Russia wanted to fight for the motherland. The result would be 
one of the most remarkable phenomena of the First World War. When Maria Bochkareva founded the Russian Women's Battalion of Death in May 1917, it inspired women all over Russia. When the news got out, women all over the country were crawling out of the woodwork to volunteer for her battalion. Most of them had to be turned away due to the time and the distance from Petrograd. But that didn't stop them. The women of Moscow, for instance, organized their own Moscow Women's Battalion of Death on June 16th. An additional battalion in Petrograd was called the 1st Petrograd Women's Battalion. In smaller cities all over the Russian Empire, women veterans of the last three years began to take the initiative and organize their own units. In Mogilev, Tomsk, Perm, Kiev, women's units began to spring up like crazy. Again, just like with the individual women who had served in combat, nothing else like this happened in the First World War. It was like Yashka's original idea had opened the floodgates. Thousands of women were volunteering for combat service and petitioning to be sent to the front lines as quickly as possible. This was not a one-off event. By July 1917, it was a phenomenon so widespread that military officials were unable to keep track of them all. Despite the notion that war is something poor people fight on behalf of rich people, a notion I don't agree with, by the way, but that's a different subject, the majority of sources show that these women volunteers came from all walks of life. For instance, several young noblewomen volunteered for Yashka's battalion, and many came from the middle classes and the upper classes as well as the peasantry. They ranged from totally illiterate to college graduates, factory workers, society ladies, peasant farm girls. The women's battalions were not just a product of class. At a minimum, 6,000 women would serve in officially organized women's combat units during the war. And thanks to the chaos of Russian record keeping in this time period, this is a low number. That's the minimum. That might not seem like a lot. But it was 6,000 more than in any other country. And this was over a relatively short period after three years of war in what had been one of the most repressive and patriarchal societies in the world. That is nothing to shake a stick at. I mean, think about it. It was a revolutionary time. Literally, capital R revolutionary. Anything seemed possible. Now that women were citizens, they were hungry, not just for the rights of the citizen, but the responsibilities of the citizen. Throughout history, service had been tied to citizenship in free countries. And when the possibility emerged for Russia's women to fulfill their roles as citizens, they didn't just answer. They organized and volunteered themselves. No one forced them to, and most men didn't even want them to. All we can say is that Russia's women had a real, genuine desire to serve their country, and not just by supporting the war effort, no. They wanted to engage in combat. 
What can we say? This was a grassroots movement. Even though only one battalion had been approved at first, their existence had basically popped the cork on something incredible. There was a real enthusiasm for women to serve in combat in a 20th century country during a world war. This is something, like I said several times, happened to no other country in the First World War. And like I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, has only recently become a thing in the 21st century. However, even though many of these units were raised and trained to fight at the front, only one battalion made it into combat. And that battalion was Maria Bochkreva's Russian Women's Battalion of Death. How would they do? Let's find out. After their trials and tribulations, and after only five weeks of training, Yashka and her battalion received word they would be headed to the front. In June, the provisional government had launched a great offensive against the Central Powers to try and win the war before the army completely fell apart. It was called the Kerensky Offensive after the president. The attack had not gone well. Many units refused to go forward. The soldiers' committees flatly ignoring orders to attack. Some units went forward only for a minute before retreating back in disarray. The results were frankly embarrassing, and so it was time to call in the women's battalion to see if they could fulfill their core function. It was time to see if the male soldiers could be shamed into fighting. Before we go any farther, I want to drive this point home just a little bit harder. The women's battalion of death was not created because the Russian government believed women could and should fight. According to both Yashka and the provisional government, its reason for existing was to shame men at the front into fighting for the motherland. The idea was that their masculinity would be injured because women were having to do their jobs for them. Now, this isn't a totally novel idea. Shaming men into fighting was something a lot of countries in World War I did for various reasons. But ultimately, Russia in 1917 wasn't like those other countries. The men weren't refusing to fight because they were scared. They were refusing to fight because they believed they were being sacrificed in a war for the rich and powerful, for the capitalists and profiteers in the rear, and because Bolshevik ideology was spreading throughout the ranks. And this crude sense of class warfare would combine with a sense of wounded male pride to betray the Women's Battalion of Death. On June 21st, 1917, Maria Bochkareva and her battalion marched in a glorious parade through the streets of Petrograd. Thousands of people gathered to see this women's infantry battalion before it headed to the front. It was one of those things you had to be there for. 300 Russian women with shaved heads, gleaming rifles, and army uniforms marched to St. Isaac's Cathedral in the heart of the city. There they were greeted by the ranking military and political leaders of the provisional government, including Rodzianko and one of Yashka's most prominent supporters, General Lavre Kornilov. Two bishops and twelve priests of the Russian Orthodox Church blessed the battalion in a solemn ceremony, and Yashka was presented with two saintly icons, gifts from the soldiers of the Russian army, and a battle flag, which was a gift from President Kerensky. When they left the cathedral, soldiers and sailors poured into the ranks to lift Yashka up on their shoulders. It was a heart-stopping flood of emotion and support for the Women's Battalion of Death. They were officially blessed, not just by the civilian government, but by the military and religious authorities as well. 
The battalion marched to the Mars field to pay homage to the martyrs of the February Revolution, and three days later they boarded the trains that would carry them to the front. Look guys, it's impossible to imagine what was going through their heads. But as weird as the whole thing was, the 300 women of the battalions of death probably had all the worries of any soldier going to combat. They were afraid they might be cowards. They were afraid they might die. They were afraid they might kill. But imagine what was going through Maria Bochkareva's head. A few months ago, she had been an infantry sergeant. Now she had 300 women she was responsible for. She felt the same things all leaders feel before a battle. Pride in her girls, uncertainty about the future, fear for their safety from the enemy. As it turned out, though, the enemy was much closer to home than she ever imagined. When the women's battalion finally arrived on June 27th, they were greeted with mobs of curious soldiers. As Yashka's girls got off the train, some of the soldiers began to yell at them with gendered insults. Yashka, of course, being Yashka, yelled back with her own string of curses and led her women through the mob. What Bochkareva and her girls found out the hard way was that the Russian army had sent them to this section of the front specifically because morale and discipline here were the lowest. This created a dangerous situation for the women's battalion. The first night in camp, male soldiers mobbed their barracks, beat on the windows, even fired a shot into the building. No one got any sleep, especially not Yashka, who would go out and challenge the crowds whenever they got too rowdy. This, uh, this pretty much set the tone for the women's reception at the front. This might, this might be a bit shocking. It might raise some questions. Why did the male soldiers, who had accepted women as individuals into their ranks, react so violently to the women's battalion? First, everyone knew that the battalion was there to shame them into fighting. The Russian soldiers didn't think it was inspiring. They thought it was insulting. In a patriarchal culture that had always associated courage with manliness and weakness with being a woman, the Russian soldiers weren't ashamed. The women's battalion made them angry. Second, those other women had been exceptions, individual exceptions. This implied policy, and exceptions are one thing. Anyone could abide one woman soldier, but units of them, that was something else. The other reasons were more situational. Most rank-and-file Russians wanted an end to the war. To see new, fresh battalions arrive at the front to do their jobs seemed to be prolonging the war. Think of it like when a union goes on strike and the management hires new replacement workers. The union workers call them scabs. The scabs are hated worst of all because they're seen as sellouts sent to replace the real workers. Well, to the Russian army, the women's battalion were not just scabs, they were girl scabs. Here is what Yashka says they shouted. Why did you come here? You want to fight? We want peace. We have had enough fighting. After a week in camp, the women's battalion was moved to the front line in Lithuania and grouped into the 1st Siberian Corps to prepare for the upcoming attack. Yashka's unit was provided with machine gun crews, and they began to lay their plans for the big offensive, of which they would be one small part. Yashka addressed her girls, reminding them not to be cowards, that they were setting the example not just for women as a whole, but for the front as a whole. Despite the negative reactions from their male comrades, they had a job to do, and they were prepared to do it. On July 8th, the Women's Battalion of Death moved into the trenches to prepare for the upcoming attack. 
Darkness closed in, only broken by the flare of explosions as the women moved quietly into their fighting positions underneath the screaming of artillery shells. The army situation was dire. The unit that Yashka's women were replacing had been literally disbanded days beforehand due to their massive desertion rate. While some units were still performing their duty, other units were falling apart, refusing to go into combat or dissolving entirely. If the women's battalion was supposed to inspire the front, now was the moment to do it. July 9th, 1917 began to dawn as the artillery flung shells overhead at the German lines. The 1st Siberian Corps was ordered to attack a German force in the Novospassky Forest in the hours before dawn, when visibility would be low and the enemy would be tired. No man's land lay before the 300 women of the Women's Battalion of Death, and they were flanked to their left and right by regular army units. Yashka's girls steeled themselves for the assault. The women of the battalion fixed bayonets, tightened their helmet straps, braced themselves to go over the top, as soon as the men started forward. But when the order was given to attack, the men did not move. The officers of the male units pleaded, cajoled, and threatened their men to advance, but the soldiers' committees were busy debating whether they should attack. As the debates dragged on, the time for the attack came and went, and dawn began to arrive. Bochkareva was furious at the male units, but also worried that they were losing the opportunity to attack. Waiting any longer would be dangerous. Yashka decided that they would attack, with or without the men. They had come to the front to do a job, and no one was going to stop them from proving themselves in combat. After around 700 male volunteers joined the battalion, the women climbed out of the trenches and went over the top into no man's land. They crossed the blasted landscape with the belief that the men to either side of them would not let them cross alone. The women and the male volunteers crossed under a hail of enemy fire, but they made it into the forest with few casualties. And at first things seemed to work out. Many men to their left and right were inspired to follow, climbing out of the trenches to join the small wedge of women pushing forward into the first trench line. As the machine guns and artillery hammered around them, Yashka's battalion soon drew almost half of the first Siberian Corps in their wake as they hit the enemy lines. The Russian attack carried the first line, and then the second. Yashka's women fought like wildcats. The 300 of the Women's Battalion of Death, with only five weeks of training, did their work with rifle and bayonet and grenade. Private Sinia Orlova, who carried the banner that President Kerensky had given them, was killed. Women dashed back and forth along the front lines in the hell of First World War combat, carrying ammunition, picking up the wounded, and fighting as they had been trained to do. But at the second German line, things started to fall apart. Some of the Russian soldiers found stores of alcohol and began to get drunk, and others began to falter under the pressure and retreat. The women tried to smash the bottles on Yashka's orders and pleaded with the men to stop drinking before the momentum of the attack was lost, but it was to no avail. The 300 women of the battalion could not carry the weight of an entire corps. Many of them were seriously wounded, and some had been killed. The Germans organized a counterattack, and once again the women's battalion of death stepped up to the challenge. Bochkareva sent for help back to the rear, trying to hold the position they had gained, but no one came. Despite this, the women and the men who had remained with them 
threw back six German counterattacks with rifle fire and bayonets before they finally ran out of ammunition. By evening, the attack had failed and the women's battalion had been forced to retreat. Their commander, Yashka, had suffered a concussion from a shell burst and soon she was on her way to the rear for recuperation. The women's battalion was withdrawn from the line and the battle was over. The Russian Women's Battalion of Death, for a fresh unit, had performed brilliantly in the Novospassky Force. The women had suffered three killed, two missing in action, and 36 wounded. They had taken a number of German prisoners, two enemy machine guns, and even captured several officers, who were all extremely embarrassed at being captured by women. Any male officer who observed the women's performance was impressed, and many wrote glowingly about the attack afterwards. They had proven to anyone who was paying attention that women absolutely could fight and win in infantry combat in one of the most demanding and devastating wars of human history. And yet, the women had not been sent to the front to prove they could fight. The women had been sent to inspire the men. And if this was their mission, they had failed. They were judged not by their performance in combat, but by their influence on the men around them. In the eyes of the high command, women soldiers were only as good as the male soldiers allowed them to be. The morale of the Russian army was beyond repair, even by the example of a small number of brave women. This was the true, ultimate tragedy of the Russian Women's Battalion of Death. And I have seen this argument before, just in a different form. I have heard many people say that women should not join the military, should not be in combat units, because of the supposedly inevitable reactions of male soldiers. In their mind, it's the male soldiers who can't be trusted, so women are the ones who must be excluded. So it was on the Eastern Front in 1917. The reaction of the male soldiers had poisoned the well, forever obscuring the women's battalion of death in their successful baptism of fire. So why have we not heard of the Women's Battalion? Why is this not a central piece of evidence in the story of women in combat? Why are we still asking these questions about women in combat 99 years later? Well, you can kind of blame Lenin. The failure of the Kerensky Offensive and the growing breakdown of order across Russia made the provisional government's position increasingly unsteady. In late August, General Lavra Kornilov tried to organize a coup to destroy the Bolshevik-controlled Petrograd Soviet. Kerensky's government barely survived the coup attempt, but this had a trickle-down effect onto the women's battalion. Maria Bochkareva had been associated with Kornilov, who was now regarded as a traitor, and the battalion had been a creation of the increasingly unpopular provisional government. Hostility, persecution, and outright violence began to break out, against any of the women's units in Russia, even as women continued to volunteer in record numbers. By September 1917, though, the high command stopped any enlistment of women into the army. The honeymoon of women's military service in Russia 
had lasted four months. Several women's units remained, though, and some were even on their way to the front when events caught up with them. The 1st Petrograd Women's Battalion was forming up to leave for the front when, on October 25, 1917, Vladimir Lenin and his Bolsheviks finally launched their long-awaited revolution. This is the second revolution. Lenin's Red Guards moved into the streets of Petrograd and converged on the Winter Palace, the seat of the provisional government. Alexander Kerensky escaped to try and bring troops back to crush the Bolshevik Revolution, and the defense of the Winter Palace was left in the hands of a few soldiers. This handful included 137 members of the Petrograd Women's Battalion, who found themselves in the crosshairs of Vladimir Lenin and the Red Guards. I mean, talk about losing the lottery. Now, the fight for the Winter Palace is the best-known action of the Women's Battalion in the First World War. And it wasn't even Yashka's battalion that was there. This is a different battalion. Because of the intense media focus on the October Revolution, it was widely reported that women soldiers had defended the provisional government's headquarters. What was misreported was their performance. American war correspondent John Reed, a socialist who was sympathetic to Lenin, described the women as cowering in the back room and becoming hysterical, while men did the real fighting. Of course, Reed wasn't in the building, and his report does not jive with other reports, who record that women were the last to give up fighting on October 25th. And initial Bolshevik accounts did report that the women offered the fiercest resistance. The captured soldiers of the Petrograd Battalion were just sent home after Lenin's revolution had achieved its victory. All across Russia, anarchy spread as order collapsed in the wake of Lenin's revolution. Yashka's battalion had to fight its way out of the front lines after they were attacked by the undisciplined, aggressive men they had come to the trenches to motivate. After the women's battalion of death had escaped into a nearby forest, Maria Bochkareva tearfully acknowledged that they would have to disband. She organized a quiet escape. Her girls donned civilian clothing and filtered out to try and rebuild their lives in the chaos of revolutionary Russia. Their commander followed, trying to find some sort of path forward now that all her supporters and patrons had been overthrown. For them, and for the rest of Russia, World War I was over, and in its place, the Russian Civil War had begun. General Kornilov and elements of the provisional government escaped to various corners of Russia and vowed to continue fighting Lenin and the Bolsheviks. The coalition that formed around them became known as the White Faction, while the communists became known as the Reds, Whites versus Reds, Russian Civil War. In between these two factions, which would pile up war crimes and massacres and torture and savagery, Russia's revolution disintegrated into anarchy and terror. It would take years before Lenin and his faction emerged triumphant to found a new government atop the ashes of Tsarist Russia. This government, of course, was the Soviet Union. And ultimately, it was the October Revolution that did the most to destroy the legacy of the women's battalions. To most Bolsheviks, Yashka and the women she inspired were forever tainted by their association with the hated provisional government. Yashka's close relationship with Kornilov, now the most prominent leader of the whites, and the women's defense of the Winter Palace had placed them firmly in the counter-revolutionary camp. Shaven-headed women were targeted, beaten, assaulted, 
or even murdered by pro-Bolshevik agitators in the anarchy of revolutionary Russia. While some of the women soldiers joined both the red and white factions, neither side formed a women's unit in the Civil War. Even though the Red Army allowed women to enlist, they were generally restricted to non-combat roles. We just can't know what happened to many of the soldiers who fought in the Battalion of Death, or any of the other units. For many of them, their fates are forever unknown. Some left memoirs. Yashka claimed that Lenin tried to recruit her, but she wound up joining the Whites. Bochkareva managed a series of daring escapes and adventures to eventually travel to the United States to lobby for the anti-Bolshevik cause, even meeting with Woodrow Wilson. It was while she was in the United States that she dictated a short memoir, one of the main sources for this podcast, as well as for our knowledge of the Women's Battalion. It's easy to find. It's on Kindle or whatever ebooks app you use for 99 cents. You spent more on a soda. But despite memoirs and records and newspaper articles and the recollections of many people, the Women's Battalions almost disappeared from history. Their performance in the Battle of the Novospolsky Forest went unremembered. The popular enthusiasm in those few months of 1917 was left silent. And the reason for this, once again, was the new regime. In the Bolshevik framing of the First World War, the conflict was an imperialist struggle, and the people had been saved from its pointlessness and destructiveness by the Bolshevik Revolution. The Soviet regime's legitimacy rested on its overthrow of the provisional government, so anything associated with that government was inherently tainted. This meant that a popular patriotic movement like the women's military movement was painted as, instead, a silly myth only supported by bourgeois and capitalist women. There was no place for the patriotic woman soldier of the Great War in future Soviet history books. Before you shake your head at those evil communists, America has been quite guilty of this as well. Think of all the things that are papered over in our own past. Think of the neglect of black soldiers or American women pilots in World War II. Russia's women soldiers were not condemned to the dustbin of history because they had failed or because they had not done what they could. It had been one of the most remarkable gender revolutions in world history, but it had been on the wrong side of the capital R Russian Revolution. It was Maria Bochkareva's final fate to be on the wrong side. After traveling to the United States and Great Britain, she returned to Russia in 1918. After an unsuccessful attempt to raise a new women's unit to fight the Bolsheviks and hanging around headquarters for a few months, she finally lost faith. Yashka threw in the towel, took off her uniform, and went home to her parents. On Christmas Day of 1919, her brief retirement was interrupted when she was arrested by Lenin's secret police, the Cheka. After being held and interrogated for several months, she was found guilty of being an enemy of the Workers' Revolution. Maria Bochkareva, the Russian Joan of Arc, Yashka to her comrades, and the commander of the first women's combat battalion in modern history, was executed by firing squad on May 16, 1920. She lies in an unmarked grave, somewhere in the heart of the motherland she had only ever wanted to serve. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? I mean, how much do I have to explain? The Women's Battalion of Death fought on the front lines of World War I as a combat unit and performed extremely well. This tiny fact, swept up and unnoticed for so long in the middle of history, 
holds the answers to those questions the United States Army asked 99 years later. Because to be honest, I doubt many of today's soldiers, male or female, would be able to withstand the conditions of the First World War. I know I wouldn't have a great time. I don't even like getting wet. The fact that women in combat could withstand this pressure, even in one case, proves something about their viability. We can quibble about upper body strength and physical fitness standards and sanitary needs all we want, but the question of whether women can perform in combat was answered 99 years ago. But this episode was about more than that one time, of course. If we include both the individuals who served in various units, in addition to the battalions raised in 1917, an unprecedented number of women volunteered to go into combat for Russia in World War I. What made this so much stranger was that Russia had been a highly patriarchal, male-dominated, repressive society before the war. What made this possible? Why did this happen? If we know why it happened, we can figure out why it mattered. A unique set of pressures hit Russia in this period. The big one was the war, of course, but the second one was the revolution. These two ingredients combined to form an atmosphere where old social barriers began to evaporate at the same time that a state of crisis consumed the Russian war effort. These coincided with a third force. War, revolution, and a third force. One that is harder to explain. The sudden emergence of a grassroots movement of women with the desire to serve in combat. And it was grassroots. It was from the bottom. I don't really have a good understanding of why it happened in Russia and nowhere else. More research probably needs to be done. So the revolutionary atmosphere in a moment of crisis intersected with this women's military revolution to allow very, very briefly for all women battalions to exist and in one case succeed in the First World War. So why wasn't this movement sustained? Why didn't other people take notice? Well, like I mentioned, the founders and units of the women's military movement ended up on the wrong side of the Bolshevik Revolution and the Russian Civil War. Their existence was inconvenient, and their memory was buried. The story of Yashka and her battalion of death only began to be told again in the 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union finally opened up the Russian archives. They were featured in a Russian film called Battalion in 2015, and the women's battalion of death was even given a shout-out in the recent first-person shooter game Battlefield 1. But the women's battalions also failed to gain traction for a different reason entirely. Yashka's battalion had been explicitly founded not to give women the opportunity to fight, but to encourage the men of the crumbling Russian army to fight. Their success was measured not on their own performance, but on how well they compelled men to perform. And isn't that so often the sad story of women's history? In so many cases, it is the men who behave badly, but the women who are viewed as the problem. The women were held responsible for the men's actions towards and against them. And I can tell you, not that much has changed since 1917. In the year 2021, the United States Army is still integrating women into combat formations. For many people, of course, the jury is still out on women in combat. But if you still have questions, I encourage you to take a gander. Do your research. Draw your own conclusions. And cast your mind back to a summer's day in 1917, when Maria Bochkareva led her women across no man's land for a country that didn't deserve them. Think for a minute of the Russian Women's Battalion of Death.
Hey, thanks so much for listening to me today. I hope that this story made you think, because it definitely made me think when I first learned about it. Thank you also for your support and feedback as I get this podcast started. If you like this podcast, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, heck, tell your enemies. If you want to read some of my writings in the First World War, or just check out a bunch of my other ramblings, you can go to my website and leave a comment at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to support in other ways, you can find a donate button there as well. You can also find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod. You can even email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just nice words. I ain't perfect, so if you've got advice, I would like to hear it. Once again, thanks so much for listening. See you same time, same place, next week on Unknown Soldiers.